you were spending the night for the very first time. And as you wrapped your arms around me, under the covers, I whispered that I was nervous. I don't do this. And you whispered back, you draw the line and I'll just trace it. And that was the moment I fell in love with you. We put a blanket on the pool deck. The stars were shining so bright. We were so far out in the country. There was no light to interrupt them. We planned this. It was perfect. But I clenched up. I just couldn't. And again, you respected that. My heart will never quite get over you. Rest in peace, Tyler. Tyler wasn't his name, of course. His name was so uncommon that anyone could look it up and easily find him and me. His name was as unique as he was. I was best friends with a girl named Christy. Christy introduced me to her family, her grandparents and aunts, and they fell in love with me right away. They told Tyler, Christy's cousin, that he needed to meet me. They pushed him to go hang out with Christy and I. They told him he should date me. This arranged relationship would turn out to be my best. Tyler came over in a green flannel jacket and a gray beanie. He was a ginger, muscular, eye level with me in height, and had an infectiously maniacal laugh. He brought weed over, and we all smoked and hung out and talked about life. Right away, I told Christy I was not interested in him. I have no idea why I wrote him off so quickly. I liked him, enjoyed his company, but maybe all my reservations from previous relationships had me afraid to begin dating again. Maybe it was the way he talked and talked when he got excited. Maybe it was that crazy-ass laugh. I don't know. I told him I just wanted to be friends. But he wanted me, and what he wanted, he always worked hard for. Their family lived on an immense farm all together with different houses around the property. He and Christy and I would go mudding on his four-wheelers, played with his big dog, ran around the woods together, and went fishing in his ponds. Somewhere along the line, it happened. I caught feelings. Maybe it was the night when we were riding around in his truck in the winter, and he saw a car stuck in the snow, hopped out, and helped them push their car back onto the road. He had an endlessly generous heart. Maybe it was the way he looked at me, like I was something precious. Maybe it was the fact that he absolutely would not relent in his pursuit of my affections. But he won me over. Tyler and I would go camping, hiking, and fishing all the time. He taught me to shoot a gun for the first time and took me out to shoot snapping turtles in a creek overpopulated with them at his friend's house. We would stay up all night watching movies and smoking, giggling our heads off, cuddling. He sang to me all the time 
forever off-key, but it made me so comfortable I would sing right along with him, and he would tell me how beautiful my voice was. He would wrap me up in his arms in such a way that every part of me felt held together by him. I struggled terribly with my sexuality, fearful of intimacy, and always uptight about moving any further than just kissing. It was more than just the repression of my years indoctrinated in the Pentecostal church. It was genuine fear. I wasn't afraid of pain or anything like that. I was ashamed of my body, ashamed of feeling anything close to intimacy after everything I had been through. I would dissociate, would have flashbacks I couldn't even communicate about in that moment, would clench up at the slightest touch past my comfort zone so much that my body actually ached. The first time he spent the night with me, curled up beside me in my bed, I told him I wasn't ready to do anything physical with him. I was petrified. He looked into my eyes, brushed my hair back over my ear, and told me this. You draw the line, and I'll just trace it. He didn't just respect my boundaries. He encouraged me to set them. When I had finally made up my mind that I wanted to go further with him, we planned it all out. We laid blankets down on his pool deck under the stars, smoked until I was relaxed and giggly, and laid out there for hours talking. But once again, when things got intimate, I just froze up. I wept, so embarrassed that I could not make myself open up to him in this way, so ashamed of myself and filled with doubt that I could ever have a normal, physical relationship with him. He held me, wiped away my tears, and told me that he would wait forever if he had to. He told me I was worth waiting for. And he did wait. He waited until I was ready, and then comforted me when I would break down in tears while we were together. He was the ground I stood on. He wasn't my sun or moon or stars, as so many others describe their love. He was my earth. He was my foundation. The love and respect that he showed me healed wounds I didn't even know I had. His infinite patience with me taught me to be more patient with myself. His love picked me up and carried me down the first miles of my journey toward loving myself. We were not a perfect couple. I still tell the story of the time I lost my ever-loving mind on him with jealousy. I would often come over to his place, a house so large that knocking on the front door couldn't be heard from his bedroom, and would knock on his bedroom windows instead to let him know I was there. I showed up one day and knocked on his window, and what I saw struck me like a bolt of lightning. He jumped out of bed in his underwear, and beside him was the figure of a woman under the blankets. Something primal took over in me. I ran to the front door, and when he opened it, I slammed my way past him, screaming, Who is that bitch? I charged down the hallway, shaking with rage and threw his bedroom door open. Who is this bitch, Tyler? The entire time, 
he called out. Babe, what are you talking about? Babe! I stormed to his bed and pulled back the covers. There was nothing but another blanket there. It was shaped like a woman, for sure, but it was just a pile of blankets. I was horrified. I had just made an absolute ass of myself. But rather than berating me for my complete loss of control and clear lack of trust, he laughed about it and promised me he would never be disloyal to me. He told me he just jumped out of bed like that because he was excited to see me. Near the end, we argued often. I was very much unhealed from my trauma, was full of trust and anger issues, and was constantly looking for a reason why he couldn't possibly love me this much. I created conflict around every turn. I would get on to him for silly things, would yell and cuss and throw fits over nonsense. Once, while we were arguing, he reached for his shotgun. I instantly started screaming and crying. He was so shaken up, because he had only grabbed it, because he saw it falling in the corner and wanted to set it up right afraid that it would go off if it fell. He consoled me and reassured me he would never do anything to hurt me. He didn't understand the life I had come from, the experiences that I had that made me so afraid for my life at the slightest indication of aggression or danger. But he was patient. One time, though, he did lose control himself. We were working on my car, the brakes had gone out while I was driving down the road. We had replaced them together, but hadn't bled the line enough, apparently, because it happened again. We were both frustrated by the situation and inexperienced in fixing this car, but didn't have the money to take it to a shop. I don't know what we started arguing about, but I pushed him to the edge. He threw the car jack across the yard. I wrote about the experience years later. He threw a car jack while yelling at me, and I laughed, unflinching, and asked, You got that out of your system yet? In my heart, I knew, if he wanted to hurt me, he wouldn't have thrown it in the other direction. His love made me too brave. And it did. His love made me too brave. His love dissolved my fears, swept away the constant terror I lived under, and gave me hope for a future that was so much brighter than my past could ever allow me to believe in. One morning, he gave me a catalog full of rings. He knew I was very particular, and in my previous relationship was given a ring that I hated, and he wanted me to show him the styles of rings that I liked. He asked me my size. We talked about our future and our dreams together. This was the man I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. This was the man I wanted to grow old with. Not long after this, the great strain of our relationship came. He had taken on a new job that required long hours and incredibly hard physical labor from him 
and I had taken on a second job while I was also in school full-time. We had no time together, and when we made plans, they often had to be canceled for work or homework assignments or pure exhaustion. We hadn't gone on a date in a couple of months, hadn't hung out with our friends together, hadn't been close to each other physically at all, and were both desperately suffering from burnout. Our situations were mutually miserable, and we had nothing to give to each other. We barely had anything to give to ourselves. One day, he asked me, Are you even happy? And I answered simply, No. He said he wasn't happy either. We mutually agreed to end our relationship, but promised to remain friends. Years later, we kept that promise. When we would run into each other at stores, he would scoop me up in his arms and hug me, swinging me around. We were forever cheering each other on from the sidelines. I would hear about his relationships and would genuinely hope the best for them. He would check on me through his cousin Christy. I stayed close with his family, and they always said they hoped we would get back together one day. His friends and I remained close, and they would fill me in on his new adventures. He moved to Phoenix, Arizona, and went to the Harley-Davidson School to become a motorcycle mechanic. One day, he messaged me and told me about his schooling, how close he was to graduating, and his plans to move back home and open a shop here. I told him how proud I was of him. He told me how beautiful my daughter was and how proud he was of me, becoming a mother and raising her so well. We promised to hang out when he got back home. Two weeks later, he died in a motorcycle crash. A woman ran a red light and struck him, killing him instantly. He was in full gear, could do nothing to prevent it or foresee it. Christy called me to tell me and said her family had asked me to be the one to call his friends and tell them since I was still close with them. They couldn't bear it. So I did. I had to be the one to call his best friend and tell him Tyler was gone. I had to be the one to fight back my own tears to share that news. They brought him home, and I spent one last day with him, just as I promised. My heart will never quite get over him. People often ask me why I'm not dating anyone now, why I haven't settled down, why I haven't married. When you have lost two of the loves of your life, it is incomprehensibly difficult to allow yourself to love again. There is always this voice in the back of my mind telling me that I am the common denominator. The people I love just die. I joke about being a black widow and cursed only to cover the very real fears that I have that I am, in fact, just that, and to attempt to love again would be dooming someone else to the same fate.
You might think that I have described many romances, many loves, and that surely I have not loved this many people this deeply. But there are even more than I have described here. I may be alone now, but I have loved enough for lifetimes. I have an elephant heart, capable of vividly remembering and intensely loving so many people throughout my life. I don't forget, and I never let go. Before I met Jerome, I went on dates all the time, sometimes three nights out of the week. I loved meeting new people, but it was so rare to have any chemistry with them that I just kept moving on to the next one. Men, women, anyone who caught my eye and was free that night. One night, I dressed up, did my hair and makeup, polished my nails, and stepped through a mist of perfume for a date night. I was meeting up with a Tinder match, a criminal defense lawyer named Mike. We met at Bar Louie, where he told me they had the best quesadillas. He got us a corner table in the back where he could sit right beside me. I was so nervous I could barely pick at my food. He was devastatingly handsome, much more attractive than his pictures. He was charming, intelligent, funny, and looked at me like I was a work of art. We bought drink after drink until all the butterflies were settled. We leaned in toward each other, enthralled by the conversation. He was a single dad. He was successful, running his own firm, his face plastered on billboards. I was just a hairstylist, working in a shitty little chain salon. But he treated me like my job was the most interesting thing he had ever heard about. He humored my ramblings about astrology and told me he was a Pisces, my favorite sign. I told him all about himself, and he agreed, laughing. We flirted shamelessly and couldn't stop staring at each other. He ran his hands through my electric blue hair and told me I was beautiful. He asked if I wanted to go see his place. I agreed. We got in his shiny black Volvo. He drove so fast. I debated the whole way how to tell him about my rule. I didn't have sex on the first date. I actually tried to postpone sex for as long as possible, afraid of not being respected if I put out too soon. My sexual repression was still very much affecting me even after being a dancer, even after my relationship with Emma. We pulled up to his house. It was a gorgeous place overlooking a lake in a wealthy neighborhood. He parked his car in the driveway, leaned over, and kissed me. Then I told him, I just want to put this out there. I don't have sex on the first date. I hope that's okay. Of course. I actually really respect that. We don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Relief and the warmth of all the alcohol swept over me, and I kissed him again. 
I had found a perfect gentleman. We went inside, and he turned on the radio. He played Alanis Morissette, my favorite. He told me she was his favorite, too. Could he be any more perfect? His house was just as beautiful inside, meticulously clean, art on the walls, the music loosened me up. We sat on his couch and started making out. I was so drunk that it took me a few moments to register that without any notice, he pulled my pants down and started shoving his hand in my panties. I told him no. I meant it. I didn't have sex on the first date. I started getting up and pulling my pants on. He grabbed me and kissed me while pushing me toward his bedroom. He shoved me onto the bed. I continued saying no. But he did what he wanted. And I just froze. He finished in a few minutes. Alanis was still playing. It was my favorite song. Ironic. He asked me to stay and cuddle with him. I told him I needed to get home. He drove me back to the mall where my car sat. I drove home, completely wasted and numb. You would think that would be the end of this story. Or maybe you hope that I would have gone to the police, reported him, anything. Instead, I went on a second date with him. Trying to understand this logic when you haven't been in that position is futile. There's no good, rational way to explain the intense need to get your power back however you can at a time like that. I went on a second date and had sex with him willingly. I didn't even register what happened to me as rape. I told Emma that the sex was good. What else was I supposed to say when she asked me? So when she went on a date with him after and slept with him too, came back and told me it was terrible, my stomach turned. But instead of telling her the truth right then and there, I laughed. I don't know. It was good for me. I told another close friend about the situation, and she told me that it sounds like I just regretted having sex with him, that it wasn't rape. I didn't tell her enough for her to fully understand, I guess. I couldn't explain it. I think part of me wanted to minimize it, wanted to not be a victim, 
wanted to not believe it myself. The day it hit me, I was scrolling Facebook and found a thread of women talking about how he had assaulted them too. I can't describe the emotions that swept over me. It all came back, the entire experience, in vivid detail. And then a wave of guilt crashed down on me for going on that second date, for not reporting him, despite the fact that even if I had, his specialty was defending men like himself. He would have won. I was drunk. I didn't fight back. It would be my word against his. Yet still, this guilt haunted me for years. Maybe if I had fought back, maybe if I had gone to the police, he wouldn't have done this to so many other women. The thoughts swirled in my mind day in and day out. I had let him fuck me again. I had allowed these women to suffer. I was the villain in my own head, the sole reason he had continued this violence. I can look back now and see that this logic is terribly flawed, that I wasn't in my right mind and was traumatized and in shock. I can see that even if I had gone to the police, going through the rape kit would have been re-traumatizing and they might have asked all the questions they love to ask women. What were you wearing? Were you both drinking? Did you lead him on? Did you scream? Did you fight back? Saying no wasn't good enough for him. Why would it be enough for them? So I let it go. I carried on. I'd like to say I'm healed from it, but that wouldn't be true. I still haven't processed this experience fully. He messaged me many times after this, telling me how great I was, how much he wants to see me again. I finally blocked him, only to drive by his billboards and continue seeing advertisements for his firm online. He markets himself as a Saul Goodman wannabe. He makes jokes about getting the wrongfully accused out of trouble and gets hundreds of likes. When I tell this story, People always want to look him up. Several friends have turned their phones to me and said, Is this the guy? Every single time, my heart sinks. I get a pit in my stomach. The world turns upside down. Yep, that's the guy. And I'm the girl who went on a second date with her rapist. After this incident, I found myself still craving any way to take my power back. I sought out someone to help me. Emma recommended a guy who was into what I was looking for. John. We started texting and formed a plan. I left my door unlocked. He came in, unannounced. I acted surprised. I said no. I fought against him. But this time, I was in control. 
This was planned. I knew what was coming. I asked for it. Somehow, this didn't give me any comfort, any power, any healing from the trauma. If anything, it made everything significantly worse. More flashbacks. More nightmares. Every day, I was riddled with anxiety and suicidal thoughts. How could I get past this? I had been seeing my therapist for about a year when I finally mustered the courage to talk to her about it and about my childhood sexual abuse. I told her that I had a lot of stuff that I wanted to get off my chest, but that I was terrified. She suggested that we do equine therapy, a kind of therapy in which we worked with horses while I talked about my trauma, something to keep me calm and grounded while I spoke. We went to a barn out in the middle of nowhere. She introduced me to the horses and let me pick out a horse. She gave me a brush, and I went up to it and started brushing. We talked for a while, and when my nerves had somewhat eased up, I finally pulled out my phone and started reading my notes. I had written a script, the only way I could prepare for this. Shaking, but steadily brushing, I began to read it. I was sexually abused by my stepfather when I was a kid. I rationalized it away as not as bad as the physical abuse and not as bad as other people had it because he never raped me, but it was traumatic all the same. He was also basically trying to groom me as a teenager, talking about leaving my mom for me. And then, when I was 24, I was raped on a first date. Because I rationalized it away as, I was drunk, he was drunk, I would have slept with him eventually anyway. I went on a second date with him. The guy was a well-known criminal defense lawyer, so there was no doing anything about it anyway. Then, I found a bunch of people talking on Facebook about how he had done the same thing to multiple women, and I felt so guilty, like I should have done something to prevent him from doing it again, which is stupid, I know. I spoke. She listened. Then, the horse stepped on my foot. A 1,000-pound animal stomped my big toe. We got him off of me, but my toe was black and blue and bleeding after. If I was beginning to dissociate and needing grounding, believe me when I say, that moment brought me fully back into my body. That was the last time I spoke about my sexual assault. Until now. For a long time, I held this deep-rooted belief that sexual assault was rare and that me going through the things I went through as a child meant there was no way I would ever go through it again. Or at least I hoped. I thought that it wasn't common to go through such devastating experiences multiple times throughout your life. I thought that only happened to people who were being held in captivity, human trafficked, kidnapped, that sort of thing. I didn't think, after what I had been through, it would happen again. 
I didn't feel safe in my body, but I was sure that part of my life was over. When it happened to me again, this belief may have been part of why it took me so long to acknowledge that it happened at all. Lightning couldn't strike twice. In my research for this memoir, I have found that the truth is staggering and quite the opposite. Numerous studies suggest the sexual victimization in adolescence significantly increases the likelihood of sexual victimization in adulthood. Studies suggest that SA in childhood or adolescence increases the likelihood of SA in adulthood between 2 and 13.7 times. Women with an early history of any abuse or neglect are seven times more likely to be raped in adulthood. In one study, approximately half of child sexual abuse or CSA victims reported sexual re-victimization later in life. Several researchers speculate that mediating factors caused by CSA contribute to higher risk of sexual revictimization. Childhood abuse may interfere with normal development of interpersonal relatedness and affect regulation, which in turn decreases abuse victims' awareness of danger. Negative long-term effects of CSA may be attempts to avoid negative emotional states but such emotional avoidance can create challenges in recognizing danger cues. Some female CSA victims may associate sexuality with pain, punishment, and other negative outcomes, leading them to believe that coercion and trauma are normal aspects of sexual relations. This, in turn, would leave CSA victims with a, quote, higher threshold of tolerance for coercive or forceful sexual advances. To summarize the findings, the abuse we went through as children primed us for future abuse. Even when the Me Too movement was first popping off, I could not bring myself to share my experiences, even when all my friends were. I could not bring myself to admit that I had been re-victimized. Not me. I had been the one who waited until I was an adult to start having sex. I had boundaries, firm boundaries, about not having sex on the first date. Not me. I was so careful not to put myself into situations in which I could be hurt. I was so careful not to be perceived as slutty or moving too fast. Not me. My friend had told me that it wasn't rape. I had gone on a second date with him and had sex with him willingly. Not me. Then my friend Caitlin told me about her experience being sexually assaulted. She told me how she was passed out drunk and woke up with him raping her. The guy she had a crush on the guy she flirted with, the guy she had wanted to date. She told me how after she went out with him and had sex with him consensually. She told me 
She had done it to get her power back, to feel like it hadn't been right in the first place. She told me her friends told her it wasn't right, because who goes back for seconds after that? My eyes were opened. Caitlin validating her own trauma, telling me that it was in fact rape, helped me see that my own was too. Caitlin telling me about that same need to reclaim her power, her control over the situation, was the confirmation I needed that I was not crazy, was not making this entire experience up. She was unconscious. I said no. Even if we had been in a relationship with them, even if we had been married to them, it was still rape. Not saying yes is saying no, and not getting consent is rape. Even if you go on a second date, even if you have already been victimized before in your life, even if you were attracted to them, even if you flirted, even if they were drunk too, your experience is valid, your trauma is valid, and you deserve help working through it. So there it is, I guess. Me too.